He was on break from seminary, and he had learned a lot. He was ready to dive in and be a pastor, but it wasn't time just yet. He wasn't quite done with school. It wasn't time just yet for him to be a pastor. So he thought that he would kind of dip his toes in and pretend to be pastor for the morning at his dad's church. So, in his words, he kind of felt like the Pope. He shook hands, made nice, kissed the babies. And then when they got home with his parents, he said, I don't know how good I'd feel about having some of those men in my congregation. Some of them had alcohol on their breath. I don't know if I would like them in my congregation. And my grandpa shot my dad a steely glare and said, those are my kind of people. And my dad didn't say anything else. He knew never to bring that up again. As I contemplated our gospel lesson today and explored this text about Jesus with children, I wondered if actually that was a little bit how the disciples felt, like my dad's story. Let's, let's get into this. In Mark 9, Jesus wants time to be alone with his disciples, to teach them. He knows that it won't be long until they're in Jerusalem, and it will be time for his passion. He knows that it's coming. So he wants this time to cultivate his relationship with his disciples and to teach them about what's to come. And he's already tried to tell them about this a couple chapters earlier in Mark, but if we look at it and read it, and remember, Peter rebuked Jesus. But Jesus is going to try again and see how his disciples respond this time. He is going to experience a passion. He's going to die and on three days rise again. And what is their response? Verse 32 says, But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him. The end. Man, they are dips. They are so dense. They don't, they're terrible disciples. They should be so much better. Jesus has already told them about his passion. They didn't get it the first time. And now he tells them again, and they still don't get it. And they don't even ask. They don't press. They don't try to find out. Man, they're never going to get it. As we think about our lives, we realize that actually maybe this is us sometimes too, where we don't get it. And like the disciples, we're afraid to ask. We subconsciously fear that maybe we won't be able to handle the truth once we hear it. Or we don't want to have to feel responsible to respond to the answer that we get. We're not yet ready, but maybe one day we will be. When we're a little older, have a little more life experience, a little wiser, a little more confident, a little more able to hear the answer we're given. But we're not ready yet. So what is it that the disciples are afraid to hear? Maybe it's that their hopes of the Messiah won't play out how Jesus intends it to, and that they are following not exactly the kind of Messiah that they thought they were following. Maybe they're afraid of their theology imploding. What does this mean about God? If Jesus suffers and dies, what does that mean about God? And then what does that mean for their future? 
Maybe you have some other guesses of what they're wondering about and what they're afraid of. And you may be right. Reading Mark, we don't know what they're afraid of, we just know that they're afraid and they don't ask. And maybe it's because they feel so uncomfortable because of their fear that they just decide to do the next thing that comes into their mind. So they argue over who's the greatest. Maybe that'll make them laugh or, you know, bring a little lightheartedness uh, to the situation. Let's argue over who's the greatest. Jesus is ahead of us, so let's just go at it. Who's the best? They arrive at Capernaum, which is where Peter lived, and actually where many scholars believe that Jesus uh, had his home base for ministry out of Peter's house in Capernaum. So they get there, and they probably recognize the people that are around them. And then, of course, Jesus decides to sit down in front of whoever is there so that he can teach them. He sits down, and he asks them what they were arguing about on the road. Silence. But, of course, Jesus knows because he tells them that whoever wants to be the greatest, must be the last and the very servant of all. He knows. To attain a position of consequence, one must be at the bottom, the servant of all. And then Jesus gives this image that the disciples won't be able to forget. He brings a child into their circle and hugs this child. But before we start to get sentimental over this picture and fawn over it, there's something that you and I need to understand. Children didn't mean the same thing to them as they do to us. If you or I hug a child, it communicates that we're kind and thoughtful, good people, really. If children actually come up to us and give us a hug, it communicates something even more it means that we're sensitive and safe people to be around. It's a good thing to be good with kids. But Jesus' embrace of a child in his culture meant something really different. Children had no status or prestige. The image of Jesus embracing a little child was not meant to be sweet or kind. It was instead a shocking communication that Jesus was bringing himself down to the level of this child. Jesus was saying that he is on the same level with this child. They are equal. Because our conceptions of children are, today are different from what they were in Jesus' day, if Jesus were to teach us as he did in Mark 9, he wouldn't use the example of a child. It wouldn't carry the same weight. It wouldn't mean the same thing. Jesus would use a different kind of person to make his example. This person would be someone whose company many would be embarrassed to keep. It would be someone who couldn't make you look good. It would be someone you would fear would completely discredit you and ruin your reputation. You might have a picture of this person already in your mind. This is the person Jesus would embrace in his arms and say, whoever welcomes this person in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me doesn't welcome me but the one who sent me. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. 
is not very sweet. To be great in the kingdom of God is to befriend and welcome the ones at the bottom, the most unlovable ones. To be first is to become the last and the servant of all. Is it any wonder that many of us say it's hard to see God? Everything in us wants to look up, to look for glory, magnificence, power, influence. We don't want to look down. And we especially don't want to be down, to be with the shameful and humble things of this earth. As Lutherans, we talk about this in, in terms of the theology of glory versus a theology of the cross. We, we have this as a theology because our natural inclination is to want to look up. We want to, but Jesus is revealed in the broken and the shameful. Is it any wonder that those who have the most attractive and abiding faith are the ones who have experienced incredible pain and suffering? In Matthew 5, Jesus calls them blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the ones who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake and when insulted, persecuted and have false accusations against them. Blessed are they. This is why it is so difficult to see God. You and I don't want to look in the places where God dwells or where he chooses to reveal himself. We want to look up in the places of glory and magnificence. This is why Jesus uses the metaphor of the child, not to be sweet, but to show that this is where Jesus' presence is. He chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Lutheran theologian Marva Dawn composed an entire study on this theme in her book, Powers, Weakness, and the Tabernacling of God. It's not an easy read, but I definitely recommend it. Dawn writes, the goal is for our power to come to its end because God's power comes to dwell with us in our weakness. Even as Christ accomplished atonement for us by suffering and death, so the Lord accomplishes witness to the world through our weakness. In fact, God has more need of our weakness than of our strength. This is terrifying, and it's unattractive. The goal is to come to the end of ourselves, the end of our power, hubris, abilities, accomplishments, reputation, all of it, to come to the end of ourselves so that Christ may dwell in us. Because Christ dwells in weakness. As the Apostle Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When you and I come to the end of ourselves, 
That is where Christ begins. Many of you have heard me speak about my friend Sarah. Sarah was the youth director at the Presbyterian Church right next door when I did youth ministry at the Lutheran Church. And we did so many activities together and invented ministries like a coffee ministry for high schoolers that people thought that we worked together. But we didn't. We just worked next door. I loved Sarah. But I realized that there were so many things about her that I had no idea about until she died. A little over two years ago, Sarah had her second child, a little girl. And for a reason I still don't know, two weeks after she had her baby, Sarah died. And at her service a few months later, I was asked to share about our friendship and about this person that everyone knew. I looked through old cards and pictures to, to recall these memories, to think about my friend Sarah, to think about what I might share to the congregation gathered. And as I read one of the cards, I realized just a little bit about how much she had loved me that I had never known at the time. And as I think about it, I wonder if I'll ever be the kind of friend to somebody that she was to me. And then it came time for the service. That Presbyterian church was packed. And it wasn't packed because she died too young. It was packed because each person there was loved by Sarah. And Sarah had loved each person there. And it was this incredible image. It's a wonderful thing when you have a packed service for a memorial service. But it's another thing when you catch a glimpse like I caught from this service. As I looked out at the congregation, it seemed like these people did not belong in the same room together. They were so different. They were all different ages, social classes, colors, creeds, languages, genders, and sexual orientations. I could not believe that all of these people had been loved by the same person and loved the same person. I've never seen anything like it before and I probably never will. It was incredibly humbling as I thought about my own memorial service one day. Will this be the kind of gathering that, are, that is here? It felt incredibly humbling, but also this incredible manifestation of the love of God. No one there was out of place. Everyone knew that they were welcome and everyone knew that no one was here and no one was here. These were her kind of people. And no one was out of place. As I asked my friend Allison about this memorial service, I asked her if, if she caught this same glimpse. And she said, absolutely. That's what Sarah was like. Sarah openly loved. And she seemed to have an especial, a, a special love for those who had less, for those who struggled. As you and I follow the path of Jesus, this path called discipleship, we will be called to look down, to come to the end of ourselves, because it's in the end of ourselves that Christ dwells. And it is where Christ dwells that no one is on the bottom, 
and those once thought of as lowly are treated with the greatest honor. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are good, and you have created us for your glory. God, we pray that you would continue to transform us into the likeness of Jesus so that all people will know that they are loved and welcomed by you. God, we pray for your church, both here and everywhere. We pray that your church would look like this image of Jesus welcoming in the little child. We pray that it would look like the first church where there were people of all different social classes, men, women gathered together, people of different ethnicities, languages, that it totally scared those who ruled. They wondered what might happen as a result of people being so equal like this. God, I pray that that your image would be our image, that we would see what you have for us and live into that calling. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.